Let's stand in honor of God's Word. Let's read the Word of God and uh, really put our heart and soul and give attention to the public reading of Scripture. It is the last passage of this glorious book of 2 Corinthians. This is what the Word of God says, beginning in verse 11. It says, Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let's pray one more time. Father, again, we pray over your word and ask that you would help us now to discern, Lord, what you are speaking to us today through your word. Lord, this salutation is not just a a formal token uh, closing of a letter, but it is a jam-packed theological exhortation to the church, and it is meant for our good. It's meant for our growth. And so, Father, we pray, help us, Lord, to esteem all of your word as uh, a beneficial and uh, that all of your word is, Lord, meant for our instruction and for training in righteousness. And we see it, Lord, as God-breathed. We see it, Lord, as your inspired word that you yourself has vested your authority into, this, into these texts, into these verses. And so, God, give us a heart. Make us receptacles of your truth today. We pray that the miracle of enlightenment would take place today in our church, that you would even use this scripture to save, Lord, here and abroad as people hear your word. Father, we ask your blessing on our time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. I see in this passage of scripture a great promise, and it is a promise that is woven into all of the pages of Holy Scripture. And that is the promise of the presence of God. That is, after all, what distinguishes us from everyone else. That's what distinguishes the people of God from the people of the world. And that is that we have God's special presence in our midst. Although we no longer have God in a tabernacle, we no longer have God in a temple, we no longer have God's presence contained in an ark, We do have God's presence residing in our heart individually. And we do have God's presence residing in the church corporately. We make up his body. If you would, we are now his ecclesiastical temple. And each one of us is a building block. We're like a brick in the wall of God's holy tabernacle. His temple, his building. Paul says to the Corinthians in Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, you are God's building. We are God's building. He is the architect. He's the designer. And he has designed to put his covenant presence in our midst to distinguish us from the rest of the world. It is because we know, brothers and sisters, that the presence of God is among us, that he is here to bless us. He is here to give us rest and to give us peace on every side. That's what David prayed over the children of Israel in 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 18, that the people would experience God's presence and that he would give them rest on every side and that he would subdue all of their enemies. Well, God has surely done that. He has subdued our enemies, but greater enemies than Philistine or Syrian. He has subdued the enemies of the principalities and powers, spiritual hosts of wickedness. And whether it was in the temple or the tabernacle or the tent of meeting, God's presence was there in order to consecrate God's people. And that's another thing that the presence of God does in us. It consecrates us. It sets us apart. It distinguishes us in a holy way. Exodus 29 verse 45 says this, I will dwell among the sons of Israel and I will be their God that they will know that I am the Lord God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. I will dwell among them, and I am the Lord their God. This was the eschatology 
of the children of Israel. They saw that the culmination of human history would only be finished once God was truly dwelling in the midst of his people. Zechariah 2.10 looks forward to this time. And he says, sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Well, their eschatology is our eschatology, because in Revelation 21, this is what you and I are looking forward to as well. It says, John the Revelator says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them. They shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. That language of God among his people, God being our God, God, uh, that that God himself dwelling among us, that's all covenant language that is now attributed to us. And so when Paul says, do these things, and the promise is you will experience some facet, some aspect of what it means for the God of love and peace to, if you would, dwell among you, then what he is promising to us is a great God-centered promise that we dare not be without. And so in this text, what you will find is that we see something of the God-centeredness of God in every part. First, verse 11, God's blessing comes through us through man's obedience, or we can simply say God's blessings through man's obedience. Verse 11 again says, finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. That's an amazing concept, isn't it? This conditionality, if you notice, these are all imperatives in the Greek language. Rejoice. That's a verb. That's not a noun. That's a verb. It's a command. Rejoice. Be made complete. These are all commands in the Greek language, and therefore, they set forth the conditions upon which the the, the blessing of God's presence will come. It's not to say here at all that Paul is teaching anything like salvation through obedience. He is not. He is talking to saved people how they can experience more of the presence and therefore of the blessing of God in their lives. This is how we do it. We do it through obedience. We do it by adopting a certain mindset that we have God to bless the church if we obey him These are foundational Christian virtues. I don't know if you noticed that. Each of them are characteristics of the the life of a believer. That is, the life of a believer individually and also the life of the church corporately. They are joy, maturity, comfort, unity, and peacefulness. And so very quickly, and without trying to turn this into three different sermons, let's look at each one of these individually because they are all weighty. This is nuclear strength for Christian maturity right here, Christian living. First, he says, rejoice. And so we come to the issue of joy. Talk about a foundational Christian virtue. My dear friend, if you are a joyless Christian, you had better rethink your call. You had better examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Because as I surveyed the pages of Scripture looking over the concept of Christian joy, which is so radically different than the joy of the world, I found that fundamental and foundational to salvation is is evidence through joy. That is to say that when God touches your life, you cannot help but to be filled with a newfound joy. That is not to say, dear friends, that you will not be at times filled with melancholy, that you will not be at times downcast, that you will not be at times in the darkness of depression. Oh, you will if you're really truly following the Lord and if you truly are engaged in spiritual warfare and spiritually advancing the kingdom of God. You can expect to be harassed by the devil, the world, and the flesh. However, in spite of that, and I would say even in the midst of that, you are still commanded. It's not a suggestion. It is not just God giving an opinion here. He is giving us a straightforward, raw commandment. Rejoice. Paul says that in Philippians 4.4, you remember. Rejoice in the Lord always. 
You want to talk about a challenging exhortation. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. That is the joy verse emphatic right there. Paul's saying there's something so true. There's something so right. There's something so biblical and beautiful about Christian joy, isn't it? I love to see it in other people. I love to see Christians beaming with the joy of the Lord. And if you don't have that joy, something is wrong. Because it's not okay to go around in the Christian life constantly fretting and worrying, and constantly overwhelmed with anxiety and fear and doubt and depression. No, my friends, even in the midst of those trials, we are to persevere in joy somehow at the end of your complaint. Like David, like the psalmist, often would give their complaint to the Lord and say, Oh, how long, O oh Lord, am I going to be waiting for your salvation? How long, O oh Lord, do you ever feel like that in your trials? How long is this trial going to last? But at the end of the day, you must finish with the exclamation, I will rejoice in the Lord no matter what. I'm sure Paul, there as he's writing Philippians from a Roman prison, imprisoned by a Roman guard, I'm sure that he was tempted to give his complaint day and night. How long am I going to be in this cell? How long am I going to be on house arrest? How long am I going to be chained to a Roman soldier? But it is in that very context that he, that he bursts open with Philippians and writes this verse, Rejoice in the Lord always. Now, either Paul is a, breath, a breathtaking hypocrite, or either Paul really had a divine, supernatural joy that overcame his trials. I think it's the latter the whole Christian life should be a life of joy. Oh, just think of it. The joy of your salvation. The joy in the Lord. Joy that transcends all of our adversities and even in the context of affliction. I don't think I can think of a more beautiful, supernatural, wonderful, spiritual thing than an afflicted believer rejoicing in the Lord. It just beams out of them. And the Christian life really should be bookended by joy, if you would. It begins with the joy of conversion. It begins with the joy of salvation. It begins with the joy of regeneration. And then we live the whole life long in joy and in hope. First Peter captures, Peter captures this in his book, First Peter chapter 1. If you go there with me, this is, this is how you can set this joy in front of you always, all the time. When you're tempted to let it fade out of sight, go to First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 6, and remind yourself, how can I have joy in this trial again? This is how. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. You see that? You have a heavenly reservation for you, folks. Now, I don't like those Bibles where they try to make it personal and they say, insert your name at every verse, you know. Uh, but sometimes we need to, to feel the, person, the, the, the personableness of this. I don't know if that's the right word. But you've got to make it personal. You, my dear brothers, you, is, you have a reservation. It's reserved for you. Josh, Amy, Nancy, Chris, it's reserved for you. You have a reservation. I can't name everybody. That'd take forever. <laughs> but you see my point. And furthermore, this joy is also guarded by God. You are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 6a is crucial. Verse 6a. In this, you greatly rejoice. Do you greatly rejoice? 
He didn't say once in a while, you know, it can encourage you if you think about it. No, it's greatly rejoicing, great joy emanating from the truth that, there, that you have an imperishable inheritance reserved for you. Boy, I want to stay there forever. The second thing, however, is not just that Paul wants us to be filled with joy, but he also tells the Corinthians again, be made complete. Now, we looked a lot at this, but again, this is a call to maturity. It is a call to maturation. That's a, one way you can translate this word uh, that he uses here. And it is meant to overcome the divisions and the, and the sins and the problems that are existing in the Corinthian church. So, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, you kind of see the dynamic there. He says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete. Isn't that amazing? In the same mind and in the same judgment. That will come into play in a little bit again. But isn't that amazing? And Paul's view you can have all this other Christian stuff going on. You can be a doctrinal church. You can be a charismatic church. You can be an emotional church. You can have a concert every Sunday that is Sony quality. But if there is disagreement, if there is divisions among you, you are not yet complete. Completion is a sign of maturity. And the absence thereof is a sign of spiritual adolescence. The next thing is that he encourages us. No, he commands us. Once again, he exhorts us to be comforted. Christian comfort. Very interesting. Think of it that way. What he's talking about when he says be comforted is Christian comfort, which is different than any other kind of comfort. We're not talking about convenience. You know, don't use this verse and say, Paul said be comforted, so I'm going to go out and buy, you know, the latest comfortable couch or whatever. No, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying, you know, dial in your AC or, you know, get real cozy in your home. No, actually, the word parakaleo is the word for exhortation. It is the word for encouragement. And really, the only thing that remains to be decided here is not so much what the verb is uh, uh, meaning, because it, that is probably the, more, the closer or more literal meaning, something like encouragement or exhortation. But the question, boils, the question is an exegetical one. Is he, saying, uh, in, is he saying in the active voice that we are to encourage one another so that encouragement ought to be going on? Or is he saying in the passive voice that you ought to receive encouragement and exhortation? Murray Harris, in his commentary on 2 Corinthians, sides with the latter and says that what he is encouraging here is that we become receptacles of exhortation, receptacles of encouragement. And that makes sense in light of the language of maturity. It's not easy to receive encouragement, especially when you're in the flesh or when you're upset. When you need to be exhorted, you need to receive exhortation. And this is both taught in Scripture, both the idea that we are to encourage one another, obviously, and then the idea that we are to receive exhortation. Titicus was sent to the Colossians, Paul says in, in Colossians 4.8, for the purpose of encouraging their hearts. And that's the ideal. The ideal is that we be exhortable, that we be encouraged and we be encourageable. And there's nothing worse. This is how you know, by the way, if you have a living church or a dead church. You know you're in a dead church if the people are no longer sensitive to exhortation, if the people are no longer responsive to encouragement. They're like a brick wall. Their hearts are hardened, their minds are closed off, and they have a soiled attitude that doesn't allow them to be encouraged, to feel the weight of exhortation. But this is how you know you have a living church, an alive church. When you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, when He is powerfully and prophetically applying the Word of God to your heart, when you know that word that was preached on that day, that truth was just woo, like a laser beam right into my heart, and God spoke directly to me in that. The fourth thing is an exhortation that Paul gives here 
towards unity. He says, be like-minded, and that's a very good translation by the NASB. Be like-minded, because the literal Greek word is ta auta phronete, which means think the same thing. Think the same thing. Now, Paul is known for calling the church to be like-minded. You remember in Philippians 2.2, he says, make my joy complete by what? By having the same mind, thinking the same thing. And of course, what he's saying there is not that we ought to be like robots going around. We all say the same thing. You know, we all speak in the same ways. We all act like one another. That's not what he's saying. It doesn't even mean that you, have, that you can't have a divergence of opinion. No, you certainly can. But when it comes to the essence of the gospel, when it comes to the essence of the Christian faith, as much as possible, we ought to have the same mind. We ought to think the same things. A church that is not thinking in the same way will be greatly inhibited in its ability to further the gospel. Why do I say that? Because in the book of Philippians, the same book where Paul says, look, be of the same mind. He says, maintain the same love. Be united in spirit, intent on one purpose. The book of Philippians is largely about the church's ability or inability to advance the gospel. To advance the gospel. This is why Paul has to exhort uh, uh, Euodia and Syntyche in chapter 4 right? To get along because two women in the church can ruin the effectiveness of the church, can ruin the progression of the gospel, the furtherance of the gospel, especially if they're important to the gospel, uh, to the mission of the gospel. And it seems like from Paul's label there in chapter four, he calls them fellow workers. They were his co-workers in the gospel. These ladies, in other words, they played an integral part in Paul's mission. So those two ladies not getting along really complicates things for Paul. Just a glimpse at how two people not getting along in the church can inhibit the progress of the gospel. Paul says in Romans 12, be of the same mind toward one another. I love that. He says, don't be haughty in your mind. So in other words, it takes humility to be able to come up to one another and approach each other and find the areas of agreement and as much as possible avoid the areas of disagreement that might cause con unnecessary conflict and division. 1 Corinthians 1.10, he tells them, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you. He says, be made complete in the same mind with the same judgment. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Out of a context where division was all over the place in the church, these are the kinds of exhortations that need to go forth. Those are the kinds of things that would overcome division because if we don't think of the same mind, there's nothing that will undermine the progress, the growth, the maturity of a church more quickly than theological division. Theological division among the leaders, theological division among the members, theological division among the members to their leaders, the undermining of the doctrine that's being taught in the church. This is why it's so important. You need to go to a church where you agree you don't go to a church where you go to make war, doctrinally speaking. Don't go to a church where you think you're going to correct the pastors. You're going to correct the doctrine. You're going to overthrow the doctrinal statement of faith. That's divisive, and you should never go to a church like that with that intent. I mean, I had a gentleman come in here uh, 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 you know, recently, uh, about a year ago, uh, tell me that he's here to cause division. And until we get on board with his ministry, his, his ministry in the abortion, uh, to, to overthrow abortion, that he is here like a prophet to prophesy to us and to bring division and to cause, you know, a, a ruckus until we get it, until we get a grip. <laughs> and I said, wow, well, you could probably guess what I said after that, but it wasn't good. I was struck. You know, after you preach a sermon, let me just give you a little insight into the life of a preacher. After you preach a sermon, you walk down these steps, your brain is mush, okay? You're scattered, you're, you're, you're just trying to get a grip. 
And I've seen this. I've visited. I've talked to pastors right after they preach. They're like, huh? <laughs> They're trying to just tune back into planet Earth, okay? And to have somebody approach you right after that to tell you, I'm here to cause division. <laughs> it's just about the worst thing you could possibly hear someone say. Remarkably, some people have that divisive spirit, that divisive bent, and oftentimes it's in the name of truth, in the name of theological acumen and theological precision and theological faithfulness. But that is not God's will for our lives. For example, I would never go to an Arminian church and to try to overthrow the church towards Calvinism. No, you need to leave that church alone, and you need to go to a Calvinist church. That's God's will for you. Oh, but you're going to leave them in theological error. That's okay. Let God take care of that. God has not called you to be an agent of division in a church, period. Furthermore, not only has he not called us to be an agent of division, he has not called us to be uh, uh, divided. He's called us to be not only united, but to be at peace. And that's the next thing he says. He says, live at peace. Be at peace with one another. It's an amazing verb because we think of the concept of peace, and now it's been verbalized. There is an action which means there is an obligation and a personal effort that we need to have towards the cultivation of the peace of the church. You, like me, need to be mindful of how to keep the church peaceful. Peaceful, as much as it is possible. Of course, in your personal life, we are exhorted, pursue peace with all people as much as is possible for you. Be at peace. Romans 14, 19 says, So then pursue the things that make for peace and build one another up. That's amazing. And I think that that is one of the ways that we do keep peace in the church is by proactively building each other up. Do you do that? Do you look for ways to build one another up? Scripture says that if you are filled with all goodness, if the word of Christ is dwelling richly within you, then you will be able to admonish one another. When you're filled with the word of God, you can't keep it in. That's number one. And and when you're filled with goodness, that's another key ingredient, you you can't help but to edify Because you can be filled to the brim with scriptural knowledge, but if you don't mingle that knowledge with goodness, then you can use theological knowledge uh, as a weapon instead instead of as a tool. And we are called to use the Word of God as a tool to keep the peace in the church by admonishing one another. Now, let's move quickly to... The second point, and that is not only are God's blessings realized through man's obedience, if we obey these wonderful, beautiful things that we are exhorted to do, but also God's love is expressed through man's affection. Look at verses 12 and 13. In the Greek text, there is no verse 14. There's just 13. They kind of mashed 12 and 13 uh, together here in the Uh, from the uh, English versions to the Greek versions. Very few English versions have it as the Greek has it, but the Greek eliminates, essentially eliminates verse 14, and just, it's just verse verse 13 comprises this, the, the, the whole end of the letter. So, in verses 12 to 13 here, it says, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. So now I'm sure you're waiting to see if I'm gonna exhort you to start kissing one another with a holy kiss. No, I'm not. I obviously take the position that this is a cultural norm that was acceptable in that culture and is still acceptable in many cultures around the world. I mean, even in Mexico, during our, uh, um, during our missions trip uh, recently, um, they, 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 they greet each other down there a lot with a holy kiss, if you would, especially the women. They, 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 they greet you, say hello, and give you a, give you a kiss on the cheek. Okay, I, I don't remember being kissed by so many strange women in my life here recently, okay? But they do that because it's just cultural. And so, and so as a sign of affection, think about that. Think about this exhortation. Greet one another with a holy kiss, okay, which is really the most intimate way to greet somebody, okay? It's a, it's a lot stronger than just a handshake. It's an intimate, and it communicates intimate fellowship. But imagine speaking this to a church that's divided, that's filled with division, that's filled with divisive people. <laughs> and Paul is saying, hey, 
Not only are you not to cause division, you ought to greet one another in the most affectionate way with a holy kiss, which just brings us to this point. And that is the whole subject of Christian affection and Christian love. Now we are getting to the heart of Christianity. The heart of the Christian religion, my dear friends, is love. God is love. It is God's love that motivated Him to send forth His Son, as we will see. It is God's love that is at work in our hearts as children of God to love one another. And just as I suggested, that if your life is a joyless life, no joy in the Lord, I'm not talking about you're a funny person and you're known for cracking jokes. I'm talking about joy, true, biblical, holy joy. And in the same way, if your love is devoid, if your life is devoid of love, of a holy love for God's people, again, you'd better examine yourself and to see has the most fundamental virtue of the Christian religion really truly been imparted to me at regeneration. If it hasn't, then maybe I need to rethink my call. Why, am I, why is it not possible for me to love people? What's wrong with me? Now, I know that we have different personalities. I know that people just, their idiosyncrasies are different. Some people just don't like to be close to other people. I get that. But in the bowels of your heart, is there affection for your brethren? In the bowels of your heart, do you genuinely love your fellow members, your fellow believer, your, your, your brother, your sister in Christ? Let me just show you. Turn to 1 John, 1 John, just to show you how fundamental this issue is. I preached through the book of 1 John several years ago. And one thing about the author, the Apostle John, the beloved, is that he speaks in a rather matter-of-fact ways. For John, I love John. He just, he just runs right in the face of our postmodern world. For John, everything is black and white. It's either truth or error. You're either a child of God or you're a child of the devil. There is no in-between. I love it. This world needs to hear the message of John. But in 1 John, he builds a whole theology of the love of God that should reside in our hearts. He says in 1 John 5.1, for example, he says, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. And there, I think it's probably referring to the believer. That's who's born of him because that's consistent with all the theology of the book. That if you truly love God, don't go around saying you love God and then have no love for the brethren. Impossible. It is a litmus test. It is God's litmus test for us to see and to determine, do I really love God if I don't love the brethren? In chapter 3, verse 10, he says, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness, not of God. And nor the one who does not love his brother. Isn't that amazing? Because it's like Christ. This is how we can be most like Christ who loved us, who so loved us that while we were yet His enemies, He laid down His life for us. 1 John 4 verse 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. You see that? It originates from Him. It's His character, His attribute. It's His virtue before it is yours. And when God makes you a son, He makes you a loving son. He imparts that same affection that He had for you and He deposits it into your heart. The love of God has been poured out where? In our hearts. The love of God has been poured out in our heart. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. This boils down to how do you know you know God? Do you have this attribute, this character, this virtue in your love? If you love God, if you know God, then you love. You have the capacity to love. And some of us need to repent of our lovelessness that we don't express to anyone. We're hardly ever affectionate the way we ought to be. 
This is God's word directly through me to you that there may be repentance needed. Forgive me for my cold, calloused heart. It's a contradiction as a Christian. I cannot have a cold heart as a Christian. Your heart should have been melted by God. And once your heart is melted by God, your heart ought to melt for other people. That's the way it works. We know from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians that love was a big problem in the church. That's why he goes on a whole discourse in chapter 13. What is love? How do we do it? What is love and how can I be that? I love it. I love it. Boy, the third thing is this. Not only God's love expressed through man's affection and God's blessings expressed through man's obedience, but God's nature revealed through man's redemption. Verse 14, the grace, this is his benediction, his closing benediction, which is not just a token little prayer at the end of a letter. It is a, it is a glorious, jam-packed theological treatise on the Trinity. So i got to preach that in the next 10 minutes or you're going to hate me. But that's what it is. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Again, God wanting to dwell in the midst of his people. It's amazing, isn't it? It's one of the most theologically uh, trinitarianly dense passages in scripture with each member of the godhead united by a single preposition all of these persons with you all of them and they are distinguished by a different divine virtue grace love and fellowship and so Paul connects each person of the godhead to a fundamental gift of salvation gift of salvation. This is why we have to think and live Trinitarianly, with a Trinitarian perspective. We are Trinitarian people, and our whole lives, I think, we need to be, we need to be informing the way we think about God through Trinitarian eyes, with a Trinitarian perspective. By keeping each member of the Godhead distinct, we will be better, we are going to better appreciate the attributes of each person, the work that each person contributed to accomplishing the Trinitarian plan of redemption. And it's done that way, not so that we just gloss over and say God all the time, but so that we get specific. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. I love Ephesians. Boy, maybe we'll preach that next. I don't know. I've almost made a vow to preach Hebrew, so I better be careful here. But Ephesians, so glorious, Ephesians. Glorious, because it's all about the mystery of God revealed and culminated in Jesus Christ. I don't think there's a better theme in all of Scripture. I know pastors are known for overstating things, so forgive me, but it's true. But I want to show you that right here in this text, Verses 3, chapter 1, verses 3 to 14 is one of the most Trinitarianly dense passages in all Scripture because it is dealing with how each member of the Trinity contributes to redemption. Why do you have to believe in election? Why do you have to believe in uh, particular redemption? Why is it important to believe in what has been historically called limited atonement. This is why. Because redemption is a Trinitarian work. And the members of the Trinity, my dear friends, are not in disharmony with each other. They are in perfect unison. And so therefore, in verses 3 to 5, you see the electing love of the Father. Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And then verse 4 begins His work. He chose us. He predestined us, verse 5, to adoption through His Son Jesus. And then verse 6 ends that doxology for that person of the Trinity to the praise of the glory of His grace. Isn't that beautiful? 
And then beginning in verse 7, the next member of the Trinity begins. The Son. The Son is the Redeemer. Who does the Son redeem? I would venture to say those that the, the Father has chosen. Perfect harmony in the Trinity, folks. There is no division in the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit all think with one divine decree, one mind, one purpose, one sovereign plan. And so, in verse 7, you get the redemption of the Son. And just like verse 6, verses 7 to 12 is all about the redemption of the Son. And then verse 12, excuse me, uh, Yes, verse 12 ends that doxology to the praise of His glory. You see that? Second member of the Trinity, all wrapped up. Third member, verse 13. In Him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were sealed. Who was sealed? Well, I would venture to say those whom the Father chose and those whom the Son redeemed. Those are the ones that are sealed with the Spirit. And then at the end of that glorious, glorious Spirit passage and the end of verse 14, that doxology ends as well. To the praise of His glory. See that? That whole Trinitarian scheme of redemption that's why it's important to keep the members of the Trinity in mind. Let me just give you one example, getting back to Corinthians. This is why we should never pray sloppy prayers, to being careful, always cautious. Remember, we are like priests ministering in the house of our God, and the priests would serve and offer their prayers trembling with fear, always giving reverence and always in awe and always with the, the holy fear of God in their heart, never wanting to put anything out of place, and so their offerings would be perfect, their lambs would be unblemished, the labor would be perfectly uh, uh, poured out, everything would be done perfectly right. My dear friends, God is gracious to us in our heretical prayers. But that doesn't mean we should continue to pray heretical prayers, saying things like, Father, I thank you that you died on the cross for me. Jesus, Jesus died on the cross. The Father did not die on the cross. I mean, I have been, I've probably said it myself, just not thinking, not being cognizant. I've heard worship leaders utter this. Not Chris, you're okay, buddy. But I have heard worship leaders get up and pray prayers like that. Father, I thank you for dying on the cross for me. That is because you are praying with a sloppy, with sloppy theology. Our prayers ought to be specific. They ought to be warranted. And you can't pray. I don't think you can pray as faithfully, as biblically, as accurately as you ought to if you're always just praying Jesus. Jesus, I thank you. Jesus, thank you for that. Jesus, I come to you. Jesus, in the name of Jesus. You know that Jesus did not teach us how to pray like that. Actually, Jesus gave us a method of prayer. That's not to say that Jesus cannot be prayed to. Oh, yes, he can, because Paul often prays to Jesus. We saw that in chapter 12, verse 9. He says to Jesus that he had petitioned him that the thorn would be taken away, and Jesus answered him, my grace is sufficient for you. However, this is why I specified the normative pattern of our prayers should be faithful to Trinitarian theology. Jesus taught us to pray in this way in Matthew chapter 6, Luke chapter 11, Luke uh, chapter 11, verse 12 and 13, John chapter 14, John chapter 16. Jesus is teaching us how to pray specifically in a certain way. And he said, when you pray, pray to the Father. And then he says, in or through my name. He uses those prepositions purposefully, intentionally, okay? And we also get from Scripture that we ought to be praying in the power of the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, Jude, verse 20, Romans chapter 8, verse 26. The Spirit is the fuel for our prayers. He is the power. He energizes us to pray to our Trinitarian God. And so we always must be cognizant of praying to the Father, through the Son, because through the Son is the gospel. 
Through the Son is the whole gospel. It means on the basis of the person and work of Jesus Christ, I am able to come to the Father. What does Jesus say? No one can come to the Father except through me. It's the through. That is the gospel that we dare not overlook. And each one of these virtues highlights a different aspect of each member of the Trinity. First, he begins with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the fountain of all life. If you do not have the works of John Flavel, I really encourage you to pick up the works of John Flavel. Volume 2 is all about Jesus, the fountain of life. There's nothing greater. I don't, I don't think there's a better a theme that a Puritan can write about. It's all about Christ. And it is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that the grace of Christ is what brings all of God's blessings to us. It draws us into communion. And even above that, my dear friends, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is expressed above everything else in our union with Christ. But not only Christ, but also the Father. And he speaks of the love of God The love of God here presumptuously is, of course, the Father because the word theos, God, is normally used in the Bible for the Father. Very, very rarely is the word theos used of Christ or of the Spirit. But it is, but it is primarily a designation for the Father. And especially in a Trinitarian verse like this, where you're already identified the Son, when you've already identified the Spirit, you've got to identify the Father. And so the Father's love, oh, the Father being motivated by His great love toward us, brothers, it was His love that motivated Him to choose Israel. You remember when He says there, right, in the context of the Shema of Israel, why did God choose Israel? It wasn't because it was something great in them. They were not greater in number. It wasn't their military power. It wasn't because they were the most beautiful people on earth. It wasn't because of any influence they had. It was because of His love that He chose them. What a picture of election. He chose us on the basis of His free and sovereign love. And that idea so foreign to the natural mind, is in perfect harmony with the mind of Christ. Jonathan Edwards said it is often a fact that when our theology is most reprehensible to the natural man, that it is right. (laughs) And then finally, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit that brings all of the graces to an experiential level, dear brothers and sisters. It is the Spirit that makes it so that we can know the love of God and not just know about it. This is the Spirit is what distinguishes us from the world. The Spirit's operations in our heart, in our soul, His activity, His ministry is what makes you different than the world around you. People know about the love of God. I remember an interview where uh, a Muslim was interviewed in in a Muslim country and and, and he was questioned about Christians going over there and preaching to them about the love of God. Then he said in the interview, we know the love of God, thank you. Well, they might know about the love of God, but they don't experience the love of God. It is the Spirit that brings the experience of the love of God into your soul. So that it goes not only doesn't remain in the realm of cognition, but it goes, it penetrates our cognitive faculties and it goes down into our soul, into our heart, into the very fabric of our being where we experience in a real ontological way the love of God. Come and see me afterwards what I mean by ontologically experiencing the love of God. It just means you experience it not just as an abstract truth, but as a spiritual reality in your heart, an affection, a warming, an ardor that swells up in your heart, an affection that God gives and imparts to us through His Spirit. And so, Paul ends the letter of Corinthians on a triumphant Trinitarian theme. I hope that you love the Trinity. I hope the Trinity for you is not just a stumbling block. 
I hope the Trinity for you is not just a doctrine to be mastered, an apologetical tool to understand. It's just not an argument to remember so that you can, you can show up your Jehovah Witness neighbors, but that the Trinity is for you the God of Scripture, the God that saved you, that redeemed you, that has communion with you, and that in your prayers and in your worship and in all of life, you take into account the Trinitarian fellowship that we have with God. So beautiful. Maybe we should end by quoting a verse out of 2 Corinthians. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, focusing on the Spirit. He says, 2 Corinthians 3.17, he says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Father, what a great book, 2 Corinthians. We look forward to what it is that you have for us in the future, and we pray always Heritage Grace would be a, pray, a place where the Word of God faithfully exposited and sounded forth. God, we don't want to skip over the details on the way to our agenda. But Lord, we know that you've given us these exegetical details, these expository truths, so that we can not only preach them, but also this, that we can live them. And so, God, give us a heart to honor you in all that we do, God. Thank you for all the marvelous truths that were shown to us in this book. And, Lord, we realize and we confess our accountability now to them. Give us the strength, Lord. Give us the power to live in light of your blessing, to live in light of your truth and your word. And help us, Lord, to, to strive with all the strength that you give us to be obedient so that we can be blessed. We want to be blessed. We want our church to be blessed. We want your presence to be sensed in our midst. And so, God, we pray, give us a heart that wants to obey these injunctions. Change us, Lord, from within. Transform us, as it were, right through the Spirit of the living God, right into our hearts. Transform our lives, transform our thinking, our minds. Transform our worldview, Lord, to be more faithful to yours. We bless you in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit, Lord. Amen.